Okay, so <clears throat> I had I came across a quote from Tertullian, and we spent last week talking about Tertullian. And uh, here's something he said about baptism I thought was very good. Um, he writes, How mighty is the grace of water in the sight of God and his Christ for the confirmation of baptism. For never is Christ without water. He who is himself baptized in water inaugurates in water the first display of his power when invited to the wedding in Cana. And in his preaching, he invites the thirsty to his own eternal water. And he approves among the works of charity the cup of water offered to a poor child. He gathered his strength at a well and walks on top of the water while calming the waves and serves his disciples with washing of water their feet by water of their feet. Even his passion bears witness to the power of baptism's waters, for while he was handed over to the cross, water intervened and was a witness against Pilate's hands. And when he was wounded after his death, water burst forth from his side that had been pierced with the soldier's lance. Excellent quote from Tertullian. Um, <clears throat> so today is the last class on our study on baptism. And good morning, Patty. And I wanted to look at some practical matters, just some earthly things around baptism. You know, the, the light and the candle, the white baptismal gown, these sorts of things that um, take place around a baptism. Um, why are those things there? What's going on there? So to um, begin our discussion, I wanted to talk about a word, um, and that word is piety. Uh, piety comes from a Latin word, pietas, which simply means duty, your duty. And uh, it was a, Ro a Roman virtue, it was a high Roman virtue in Jesus' day, to, to have pietas, to, to, to do your duty. Um, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. That's, that's your duty. Um, I want to look at Luke 17 and this teaching that Jesus gives us. So Jesus is teaching. He's teaching his disciples. If you go back to verse 1, he says to his disciples. Then in verse 7, he says, Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field come at once and recline at table will he not rather say to him prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while i eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded so you also when you have done all that you were commanded say we are unworthy servants we have only done what was our duty. So, piety, pietas, is to do what you're supposed to do. You have a duty. Um, one who does that duty faithfully is being, we would say, pious. Um, but tell me, when I talk about piety, what comes through your mind? What are things... Ooh, this is a good question. What's a Lutheran piety? What 
makes one pious. It remains steadfast in the word. Okay, very good. So we would we would classify a good Lutheran piety is to remain in God's word. Very good. Um, just to back it up a little bit before we get real deep into the religious the religious sense of piety, we would we would say that that anyone doing their duty is being pious, right? So the truck driver who gets in the truck and drives straight to their route is a pious truck driver. Or the teacher who stands in their classroom and teaches the lesson is being pious. She's doing her duty. Or the mother at home taking care of their child um, is a pious mother. I mean, when you, when you do what you're supposed to do, religion aside, the virtue of piety is just do your duty. Um, whenever I was a vicar in Georgia, the supervising pastor that I served under, that I learned under, he made, he made me do these sermon note pages where you had to outline your sermon and put blanks in, in your main points, and then everyone in the congregation had that page, and they would take notes while you preached. So I... I hated these sermon note pages. I couldn't stand it. I didn't like preaching with that sort of a rubric. I didn't like giving people like this homework to do while they were listening. But anyway, it was my duty. I had to do it. He's my boss. So I, so I write these sermon note pages. So I'm up there preaching one day, and it was, it, it, I absolutely bombed. It was a train wreck. Um, I was stumbling all over my words. I mean, I... It was like my third sermon I've ever given. And I literally had someone staring at me while I was preaching, just shaking their head like this. No doubt they had elder, right? <laughs> he, he was an elder. <laughs> but that church, they had like 18 elders. So, But uh, he's just, you know, disapproving. And I know it. Like, I know I'm failing. Like, this is not good. And so, you know, I'm like, trying to wrap it up and 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 then i look and someone's sleeping so i got someone sleeping this other person just shaking his head at me and i'm trying to stick like every part of me wants to go off script and but i got my sermon note page i got to stick to and so i'm sticking to the sermon and this lady in the congregation she stands up and she goes over to that man who's sleeping and she literally goes wake up do your duty do your work and like points to the sermon note page and i'm like well, i guess it's effective you know? <laughs> that's the point to be pious is to do what you're supposed to do but yeah timothy when you're talking about that it almost strikes me as getting into pietism rather well, than we'll we'll get the, we'll get there yeah we'll get we'll get into the the excessive use of piety is called pietism and we'll and that is a bad thing. We'll talk about that. But first, examples of piety. So to just simply do your duty, right? We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. You know, tended to the field. I took care of the sheep. And then I come into the house and I serve you. And, and, 
and um, and what, what David? Be humble. Yeah, humility. Yeah, and I would also say that that's kind of a virtue of our own Lutheran piety that we try to seek to inculcate in people is that humility of of listening, um, of only doing our duty. Other ideas of Lutheran piety. We're talking about practices of behavior, the things which we do that are right. Um, come up with any other ideas? How do you practice piety? What's a pious thing that you do? Be here on Sunday morning for our worship. Ah, very good. Come to church. Um, I'm going to throw a fancy phrase at you and I'll explain it. Um, a Lutheran piety is we have this, what is called, the centrality of a sacramental piety. Now, what do I mean by that? It means that the sacraments, so baptism, receiving the Lord's Supper, that is actually to us central to everything else. So my whole week revolves around coming to church, to the divine service, and receiving the body and blood of Christ. And then my whole week flows out from that. Um, we're unique in that among the denominations in America that we have a sacramental piety, that it's necessary for us, for us to do our duty to come to church. We can't just simply sit at home and watch on a computer screen. Um, I gotta receive the sacraments. And so part of that sacramental piety is, is preparing. And as we talked about when we looked at communion, there are things that we ought to do before receiving communion. Fasting, praying, preparing ourselves throughout the week for this moment. So yeah, coming to church is is fundamental to our duty as Christians. Um, now, so piety is a good thing. It's simply to do our duty. We have some good uh, Lutheran piety points to remain in God's word, to be humble, to come to church. But I want to talk just one word about pietism. Pietism, which is the excessive use of piety. Um, reason's a good thing from God. He gives us reason. Should we use our reason? Yes. But when we start to rely on our reason, what's that called? When I start to rely that my reason is what wins the day, and that's where my hope is found and my assurance is in my reason, we call that... Arrogant. <laughs> yeah. We call that rationalism. Yeah, rational. I could not come up with the right word. Yeah, it's okay. <clears throat> That's rationalism. Rationalism is bad because it's an excessive use of reason. It takes reason beyond its appropriate bounds and says, no, 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 no. Your reason is actually what assures you that you are saved. And, if, and until you get it figured out up here, um, there's not comfort for you. Uh, that's bad. Likewise, Pietism is the excessive use of piety. 
where your assurance becomes these things which I do, the behavioral modifications that I make, this duty that I have, that's my assurance that God saves me and that I'm loved. No, 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 no. Now you've drifted off into pietism, and that's, that's not a good thing. Does that help? You lost your humility because then I did it. Exactly, yeah. It, it actually, when you go here, it, un, it, it has a way of undoing everything else. And so as Lutherans, we, we, are, we want a Lutheran piety. We want to do our duty faithfully, humbly, but we also want to guard ourselves from thinking that by those things, therefore now I am right with God. Um, not, not so. And so we're, we're always on guard with these things. So we've talked about the centrality of sacramental piety. So when it comes to baptism... What is the duty? What, what are the things in which we are called to do before baptism? Um, and we, we had this discussion about Holy Communion. There are things which we should do with our bodies before preparing, or preparing to receive the supper. But is that, which make, is, is that which you do, does that make the sacrament worthily received? No, right? Luther says fasting and bodily preparation is good and fine outward training, but the one who is worthy to receive the supper is what? The one who believes words for you. Yeah, the one who simply believes. Um, now, he's not discounting that fasting and bodily preparation is good. He's trying to maintain the balance. These things are good. Now, when it comes to baptism, what are good things to do with our bodies? What's a good duty on on behalf of baptism this is what i want to talk about this morning bringing your children to be baptized that's good yeah <laughs> bringing your children definitely let's look at luke 3 how jesus prepares for his own baptism gives us some insight as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning john whether he might be the christ john answered them all saying I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people, but Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. What does Jesus do when he's baptized? Praying. He's praying. Yeah, verse 21. Now, when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying. Prayer is a pious work in preparation for baptism. I'm passing now um, Luther. What he writes to godparents who are going to be sponsoring children we looked at what Tertullian said about Godparents last week. <laughs> Don't do it. Your soul's in jeopardy if they grow up to be evil. 
Let's look at what. So whenever whenever we have a baptism and and uh, there are godparents of children or sponsors, Luther calls them. Part of my pastoral care for the godparents is I will call them and um, read this part that Luther writes to them, talk about the baptism, and then begin to lead them in a life of prayer. And I want you to see where Luth, what Luther's emphasizing. What's he going to emphasize to the godparents? What's their number one rule? Role? Prayer. It's going to be prayer. But let's look at how he words it. So they're beginning with the first full paragraph on the left side. Um, you see the number two. Luther writes, Out of a sense of Christian commitment, I appeal to all those who baptize and sponsor infants or witness a baptism, including the whole church, right? You're witnessing a baptism. You need to take to heart the tremendous work and great solemnity present here. For here in the words of these prayers, in the words of these prayers, you hear how plainly and earnestly the Christian church brings the infant to God, confesses before him with such unchanging, undoubting words that the infant's possessed by the devil and a child of sin and wrath, and so diligently asks for help and grace through baptism that the infant might become a child of God. Therefore, you have to realize it is no joke at all to take action against the devil, not only to drive him away from the little child, but also to hang around the child's neck, such a mighty lifelong enemy. Thus, it's extremely necessary to stand by the poor child with all your heart, with a strong faith, and to plead with great devotion that God, in accordance with these prayers, would not only free the child from the devil's power, but also strengthen the child so that the child might resist him valiantly in life and in death. I fear people turn out so badly after baptism because we've dealt with them in such a cold and casual way and have prayed for them at their baptism without any zeal at all. Bear in mind, too, that in baptism, the external ceremonies are least important, such as blowing under the eyes, making the sign of the cross, putting salt in the mouth or spitting clay in the ears and nose, anointing the breasts and shoulders with oil, smearing the head with chrism, putting on the christening robe, placing a burning candle in the child's hand, whatever else has been added by humans to embellish baptism, certainly a baptism can occur without any of these things. They are not the actual devices from which the devil shrinks or flees. He sneers at even greater things than these. Here things must get really serious. Instead, see to it that you are present there in true faith, that you listen to God's word, and that you pray along earnestly. For wherever the priest says, let us pray, He's exhorting you to pray with him. And moreover, all sponsors and the others present ought to speak along with him the words of his prayer in their hearts to God. For this reason, the priest should speak these words very clearly and slowly so that the sponsors can hear and understand them and can also pray with the priest with one mind in their hearts, carrying before God the need of the little child with all earnestness on the child's behalf, setting themselves against the devil with all their strength, and demonstrating that they seriously that they take seriously what is no joke to the devil. For this reason, it's right and proper not to allow drunken and boorish priests to baptize, nor to select good-for-nothings as godparents. Instead, fine, moral, serious, upright priests and godparents ought to be chosen, who can be expected to treat the matter with seriousness and true faith, lest this high sacrament be abandoned to the devil's mockery and dishonor God, who in the sacrament showers upon us the vast and boundless riches of his grace, he himself calls it a new birth, through which we, being freed from the devil's tyranny and loosed from sin, death, and hell, become children of life, heirs of all God's possessions, God's own children, and brothers and sisters of Christ. Ah, dear Christians, let us not value or treat this unspeakable gift so half-heartedly. 
baptisms are only comfort and the doorway to all of God's possessions and to the communion of all the saints. To this end, may God help us. Amen. So, what's Luther's point? The externals are meaningless as long as you have God's word in the water. Yep. And if you're going to witness a baptism, even more so if you're going to sponsor a baptism, or if you're actually going to do a baptism, what's the duty of the Christian? What's the piety? Pray. We should be praying. That is one thing that we are called to do, is to pray. As Jesus himself was praying when he was baptized. He's showing us the proper response, what we do when we uh, embark on these things. And so it is with all the sacraments. What ought we to do right before receiving the Holy, um, Holy Supper? Praying. Praying as we approach the altar. David? Pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing, yeah. Yeah. Um, I hope you have some sort of a prayer uh, before receiving the supper. I like to often pray the words of the centurion who says, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come even under my roof, but only say the word and my soul shall be healed. He says, my servant shall be healed. In the hymnal, there is a prayer for before communion and after communion. Good. You can make use of that. Um, or a simple short prayer like, Lord, have mercy, Christ, have mercy, Lord, have mercy. And then right after receiving communion, it's appropriate to offer a prayer. Um, the Prayer ought to be part of the daily walk of the Christian. And I'm talking like actual time dedicated to prayer like you would spend time eating breakfast, lunch, or dinner. It needs to be worked into the schedule. I have a rule that I try to follow. I don't eat until I've prayed. And not just walking around praying in my head, like actually sitting down and praying. And Lutherans have a lot of tools to help you with this. Um, if you have a hymnal at home, there's a in the front part, there's a morning prayer liturgy you can go through. There's a noon prayer liturgy you can go through. Early afternoon, evening, there are different times of prayer. If you want to get real crazy, you can pray matins in the morning. You can come to my house and pray with me while the sun's rising. Just come on out. I'm out in my chapel. Um, there's prayer at the evening, vespers, um, evening prayer. There's all sorts of different structured prayers that are good for you to pray. Oh, pastor, but I don't feel like praying. Well, where are you then? You're, you're dropping over here into pietism. If you think that your prayers are only beneficial because you feel them or something, you're dismissing who hears your prayers. God delights to hear your prayers, whether you feel something or not. That's pietism to a T. If you waited till you felt right then how often would you pray right do your work do your duty this is why luther says he who prays works twice prayer is needed and it's what you're called to do as a christian and so we ought to pray um first thing when we come into the lord's house 
And this is my practice, although you don't get to see it because I'm not in the pew with my family. The first thing we do, ought to do, when we come into the Lord's house is sit in the pew and pray. And there's a prayer for that in the front of the hymnal. Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. And it's easy because it's on the PowerPoint. There you go. There's a prayer for you to use. Um, we should be praying right before receiving the supper. We should be praying right after we receive the supper. And we go back to the pew and we sit down. It's appropriate time to offer a prayer of thanksgiving. Or to do it right there at the altar. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. You've, re you've received him. Immediately offer up your prayer right there. Um, these are all good places to pray. And the need for structured prayer is so needed because in our world, it doesn't take much to get you off doing something else. There's so many distractions. And so talking about pious behavior, take the distractions and put them away. I got to make these silly rules for myself, but they work. The phone doesn't come into the bedroom ever because it's a distraction. If the first thing you're looking at when you wake up in the morning is your phone, that's not good. Put it away. Oh, but what if someone needs me in the middle of the night? They'll get to you. Set it on a really high ringtone volume and put it in the kitchen. That's where my phone is. Um, put the phone So the phone doesn't come into my bedroom. I have structured time when I turn my phone off. So Mondays, my phone is off. Um, if there's an emergency... People will contact the elder, and the elder knows how to get a hold of me. So I'm always available, but yet I've got to set these, I've got to set these boundaries for myself because if I don't, then I'm distracted, and then I forget my duty to pray, and then that's not good for me or anyone. Um, so, so in the morning, first thing, there should be a structured time, and if there's something getting getting in the way of that, you ought to work to get that out of the way because Christ calls us to pray. Another part of piety that Lutherans don't often talk about is fasting. But look at Matthew um, it's Matthew 6, 16. He says these interesting words, when you fast, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites. They disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they've received the reward. But when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may be not may not be seen by others, but by your Father who's in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus assumes that you will fast. He says when you fast. He doesn't say if. He says when. Part of the Christian life, part of our duty that he calls us to is a life of prayer and also a life of fasting and if and this is why i encourage you when we talked about the eucharist if you don't have a practice of fasting start now and the proper place to start is the morning of sunday don't eat anything that morning until you receive the supper that's where the word breakfast came from you're breaking your fast by having jesus it's the most important meal of the day that one is up there by the altar and um, that doesn't mean go without your medicine. Uh, you take your medicine. Drink. You can drink water. If you absolutely have to have coffee, go for it. I don't want you sleeping whenever I'm preaching and someone having to come wake you up. 
do your duty. Um, but, but don't eat anything. Um, don't take any food in. Uh, prepare your, your, your gut to receive the body and blood of Christ. Now, does that make the sacrament more effective? Does it work more forgiveness of sins for you? Absolutely not. No, that's pietism. That's, that's no. But it is a good thing to do. And after you've done it for five years and you've trained your body in a, in a new way, you can say, we're unworthy servants. We've only done our duty. Right? Because this is what Christ calls us to. So when you fast. Uh, back to prayer, something else I wanted to, wanted to share. Um, <laughs> whenever I was in seminary and, and as a vicar and then the first several years as a pastor, I always had the same prayer going home in the car after getting through <laughs> getting through another service on my end. <laughs> and that was the prayer of Psalm 91 about thanking the Lord that he did not let my foot slip or stumble, that he bared it up. Right, like he got me through serving another Sunday. Um, obviously, the prayer might look differently for you because um, you're receiving on Sunday, um, and so having that time of prayer, even on the way home from church, I think is important. Um, okay, two other things. So, prayer, prayer, prayer. That's the kind of the first practical thing about baptism is the necessity of prayer. Then we have this white garment. Thing that we clothe children in. Look at Matthew 22 to see where that comes from. When we clothe the infant in a white garment, we have this parable of a great wedding feast, and it begins with verse 1, going to verse 10. We're going to look at two different or three different scripture passages here. Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son, sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who were invited, See, I prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered. Everything's ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry. He sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those who were invited but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads, and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out to the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good, so the wedding hall was filled with guests. Keep reading. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. He said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Hang on to that thought. Go to Revelation 3. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. And then look at Revelation 7, verses 9 through 14. 
After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. One of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? From where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. He said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Who's the man that gets thrown out of the wedding feast? What are we told about him? He doesn't have a wedding garment on. He's the one without the wedding garment. The king comes to him and says, how would you get in here without a wedding garment? So then the question is, well, what's the wedding garment? What's the wedding garment that he was missing? Well, in the practical sense, they provided a, a coat or cape or something that indicated that they were part of that yep. wedding party. That's right. Yeah, right. The, as, as in, in the spiritual sense, we're talking about the clothing that we receive from Christ being dipped in his blood to make it white. That's right. Yeah, Revelation 7. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So when is that wedding garment put on you? At baptism. Yes, in a spiritual sense, the blood of Christ has now cleansed you, this infant, child, adult. The, the, you have been washed now in the blood of the Lamb, and now you have been made white. So to symbolize that, we often dress our children up in a white baptismal ga uh, garment. That white garment symbolizes the, the wedding banquet attire that you wear. This is why it's also been tradition or practice of the church that when you pass away, draped over your casket will be a white funeral pall to symbolize that you have been baptized into Christ and that you, even in death, wear this white wedding garment. Last thing about the fire, the light. Um, we've got, only got a minute or two left. Um, so... Obviously, light and fire go quite a bit with the Holy Spirit. And on the day of Pentecost, we think about the tongues of fire that appear over the disciples' head. And John himself saying, one who is coming will baptize you with fire and the Holy Spirit. And so to symbolize this, the church always uses candles, fire, light. Um, so there's a specific candle that we use to symbolize the fire of the Holy Spirit that comes upon us in baptism, and that is called the Paschal Candle. It's the really long candle. And typically, so I'm going to give you what the church traditionally has practiced, that that candle is lit during the season of Easter, and it's typically placed at the altar during the season of Easter to symbolize Christ's resurrection from the dead. Then after the 40 days of Easter, 
Then its proper place is right by the baptismal font. And it's lit anytime there's a baptism to connect that what Christ accomplished on Easter, his death and resurrection, is now being provided to you here in the font in the waters of holy baptism where you're drowned and buried in his death and raised to a new life in his resurrection. And so the church does these things to try to connect visually our theology. The altar and the font are linked. But these things have been lost on a lot of people because <laughs> I came here, I'm like, what's your tradition for the Paschal candle? And I've got, I got about 15 different answers, you know? And so it was tucked kind of back in the corner by the other candles and it was almost like out of sight. So about four or five years ago, I pulled that puppy out and put it right by the font. Now I would like to see it right by the altar during Easter and then to the font um, outside of the season of Easter. But these things take teaching and I don't want people asking too many questions about why that candle's moving around without opportunity to ask questions. So, But uh, why light? Well, Jesus says in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever walks in me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We have 1 Peter 2 that says, He has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood. When did that happen? When did God call you out of darkness and into his marvelous light? Right there at Holy Baptism. Brought you through the door. And then look at Acts 26, 18. We'll end here today. Paul's telling of his own conversion. He says, he's appealing to them. Uh, back up to verse 14. We all fell on the ground. I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Let's end with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.